Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Cora Jokinen with Torque Master Industries. We will uh, talk to Cora about her beginning years like we always do and give as much information about how Cora has gotten into the off-road sector as a business owner, an enthusiast, and now with the SEMA Women's Business Network. So Cora, thank you very much for coming on board this morning and uh, sharing your history with us. Thanks so much for having me, Rich. Uh, It's an honor. So let's just jump right in. And uh, what do you consider your hometown? Where were you born and raised? Uh, so I grew up in Littleton, Massachusetts, which is northwest of Boston, about 45 minutes. Okay. And that's fairly rural? It was, but now it's like considered uh, a commuter town. <laughs> As is most of America <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've spent some, Shelly and I have spent some time up in that area. We went up to Boston for 4th of July celebration, which was probably the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And then Mm -hmm. uh, toured all, you know, drove up the coastline as much as we could and then went around Nova Scotia and then came back down. But absolutely gorgeous area. No doubt about it. Yeah. And there used to be some good off-roading in Massachusetts, but most of it is all closed down by now. Right. So you guys have to head over to Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or over to, in New Hampshire, there's still quite a bit of off-roading. Yeah, Field and Forest in New Hampshire, Roush Creek, Pennsylvania, uh, those are pretty much, an AOAA also in Pennsylvania, those are the, the big parts. Okay, cool. So let's talk about those early years. Yeah, so um, I, I went to uh, public school and then as a kid, I, I grew up playing ice hockey, and that became a lot of my focus for high school. So I applied to a bunch of different prep schools and ended up going to Lawrence Academy in Groton. And so hockey was a big focus there, and my plan was always to play in college. And I, as a little girl, I wanted to play in the Olympics. And what's cool is some girls from my team growing up actually did play in the Olympics. Very good. That's cool. What position did you play? Um, I was a goalie. Okay. I was just talking to yeah. Jesse Haynes, and he played goalie, too, and 
I know that's so funny. I was just reading his podcast and I was like, that's so funny. But I don't know. Goalies, goalies are a little crazy, um, but they also have kind of that, that sheepdog mentality, which we also see in the off-road world too, like leave nobody behind. Right. That's so, true. I yep. thought that was an interesting connection. Yeah, I, I I did as well. As soon as you said hockey, you know, I know a lot of that's like a, a very primary sport in the northern climates. Um, it's becoming more oh, so yeah. because everybody's moving out of that area. And I know they offer hockey, hockey leagues down in Phoenix. You know, it'd be the last yeah. place you'd expect to find ice. But indoors, they can do anything nowadays, can't they? Absolutely. So uh, hockey brought me to college. Uh, I went to RIT, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, for undergrad, and then went to grad school uh, in Buffalo. And what was your major? Um, so undergrad, uh, I have a BFA uh, with interior design and uh, two minors in architectural history and archaeology. Oh, okay. And my plan was always to be an architect, but RIT didn't have an architecture school. So I went there to play hockey and then only played one year, then went to grad school for architecture in, in Bo- uh, Buffalo. And that's the University of Buffalo. Yes. Okay. So growing up in those early years, what kind of student were you? Were you, you know, bookish? Were you not so bookish, more technical, or were you just kind of did your own thing? I was kind of in the middle. I did my own thing. I never really fit into a category. I was kind of like a floater socially. Okay. Um, I'd hang out with the international kids because they had cool stories. I was inherently a jock because I played hockey. And uh, I also was really into the, the art classes and stuff like that. But school itself was pretty easy for me. And it, I think because of the quality of the teachers and everything, uh, they made it engaging. And in prep school, the cool kids were like cum laude, got A's and everything. So it was very different than public school and my public school experience. Right. Yeah, I only experienced public schools. So mm-hmm. did you go back to your hometown after graduation? Um, only for internships. Okay. When I was in undergrad, the first year you had to stay in the dorms. And then I was looking at like the cost of rent versus buying a house. And I had all these hockey girlfriends and I ended up building a house nearby, like two miles from campus. So I built a four bedroom house and we built out two in the basement. And so it was a six bedroom house and it paid for more than my mortgage. Wow. So, and that was that was my parents' idea. <laughs> They're like, "Well, it's why don't you make money instead of just spending it all on rent?" And and I did. We flipped that into my next house. That makes perfect sense. Let's talk about vehicles. When you were yeah. a young kid, did you? I know you played hockey. Um, did you mm-hmm. ride bikes or motorcycles or anything like that? So. It's interesting because a lot of people ask me like if my dad was a mechanic or something like that, or if I had brothers and, and I was an only child and uh, my parents were pretty cool. They told me I could do whatever I wanted. Nothing was like stereotyped girls or boys activities. 
I got into mountain biking. And then when I got my license, I took my vehicle on the same trails. But this time I could bring my friends with me. And my first vehicle was a 1980s uh, Mercedes diesel wagon in that yellowish color they were doing. So we called it the Gouda. It was like Gouda cheese colored. <laughs> but that was that was the first vehicle I had to wrench on because only one out of the five glow plugs was working. And so at school, after hockey in, in the winter, I'd have to plug it in. And then, you know, it's like 10 o'clock at night. I got to get home and the door lock is frozen. So I got to spray ether in that. And then I got to spray ether in the motor to get it to fire. And then when it was hot out, there was like a fuse block that I had to jump because if the motor got too hot, it just wouldn't start. And so I'd be like with my hood up at a gas station or something and guys are coming over. Oh, can I help you, man? I'm like, no, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So how long did you have yeah. Gouda? I had the Gouda for a year. And then after like many nights of having to like jump start it on my own and everything, my parents are like, okay, you're, you're a good enough driver. Like, We'll, we'll get you something a little more reliable. And uh, that was a Nissan Xterra. And okay. that was my first off-road build. And uh, I was obsessed with it. I still love Xterras. So a Nissan Xterra. I know that there's a, mm -hmm. there is a very small um, enthusiast group, I would say, of Nissan. Yes. You know, it's not, it's not like Jeep or Toyotas or... Samurais or anything like that. There's Suzuki's, I should say, but uh, yeah, there's a pretty good there. You know, it's a pretty good uh, network of people. It's tight. Yeah, yeah, and um, there there wasn't like barely any aftermarket parts for it. And uh, when I went to college, like I didn't have any money, so one the first Thanksgiving break, I, I saved a bunch from like working an internship. I'm like, I'm gonna lift this, Sarah. We do tires and wheels and my dad's secretary's husband built jeeps on the weekend okay and he was like well you know cora if you want to pitch in and help i'll charge you less so i spent an entire thanksgiving break building the sextera and uh it was really cool um his name was dave and he brought me to scrapyard because we were going to make parts from scratch and it was cheaper at the scrapyard so we bought drops and stuff of square tube and plate. And uh, he was like, well, you know how to draft. Get under there with some cardboard and, you know, design your skid plates. So I did. And then I made the sliders and I did all the dimensions, but he did the welding and kind of like showed me a bit of the welding. And he showed me how to use the plasma cutter. And that was just like super fun. <laughs> I was obsessed <laughs> with the plasma cutter. And I mean, I can cut along a straight edge, you know, and it's not that hard. And he built a really sick custom rear bumper and we did skid plates and the lift and 33 inch tires. And it was like a monster Xterra. <laughs> all, all during the Thanksgiving break. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it was funny. His shop was like an hour from my parents' house. So I slept in the shop a couple of nights. Makes sense. Especially if but, you got um, all that work done in, in w w how long was your week. Thanksgiving? A week break. <laughs> yeah. And a rhino lines interior. Uh, wow. <laughs> and then we took it out wheeling and I broke one of the torsion bars. Oh, like, wow. 
at like 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> so it was kind of riding but, flat on one corner. Yeah. 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 So, they used a torch to get to loosen the, the torsion bar right. and it fatigued it. So okay. we had to replace that before I could drive back to New York. <laughs> wow. But you were able to find one. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, how long did you have that Xterra? Well, I had the Xterra led me to other things too. We wanted to talk about influences. Right. Um, when I was in undergrad, it was Spike TV, and I was watching Jesse Combs on Extreme Four Four, and I'm like, Jesse, Jesse Welch, she can do all this stuff. Nobody told her like she can't do this stuff. So I wanted to learn more about welding and make more parts and cause it, it hit that creative bug of mine. And so I found um, Haney welding school in Rochester and took a six week TIG class and a, a weekend MIG class. And then as a student, when you graduate there, they give you a discount on Miller products. And so I bought my first Miller, I think in 2002. Awesome. And yeah, and I bought a plasma too, but I couldn't run it <laughs> because I didn't have a big enough circuit and had to get creative. Um, and in my, my second house in grad school, the only 50-amp plug I could find was in the second-floor laundry room. <laughs> and I would TIG, <laughs> I would TIG up um, architectural models in there because there's no sparks. But <laughs> So you were... Your laundry room ended up being a welding space. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's creative space. Yeah. That's, uh, I wonder how many others have done that. I, I know we built, we built a Volkswagen motor in a friend's uh, front room. And it was a yeah. second story apartment. That was fun. <laughs> Trying to keep that place clean with two teenagers, yeah. you know. <laughs> so from... The Xterra, you learned to weld, you saw Jesse. Talk about that next transition on, on the next vehicle, and then we'll go into, you know, your time as an architect. Yeah, so um, in undergrad, I took that awesome Xterra and saved up and took an entire summer road trip. And I towed a 5 by 8 mountain bikes, kayaks, and uh, met up with a friend and did the top half of the Rubicon. Um, by Lake Tahoe. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the biggest stuff I've ever done. I need something bigger. <laughs> <laughs> but I still needed a daily driver and that was like Sarah. And I ran that thing into the ground. Um, I got, I sold that in probably, I think, like 2007. Okay. Um, but I, I saved up and I bought a CJ7 that had an AMC 360 that was not quite running right. Um, <laughs> with a projection and uh, Dana 300 out of a scout, Dana 44 front from scout and a Dana 60 rear. And so it was for like 2002 ish. That was pretty big. Right. 36 inch tires. Um, so I got that running. I joined the local four by four club. And I guess the next phase after that became the club president and we would always volunteer for Monster Jam shows. And from there, the I because I loved the Monster Jam shows. They were super fun. I worked really hard 
and got noticed by the show director, and he uh, invited me to work for Monster Jam. Right, and that was under and, Clear Channel and then Feld? Yes, yeah. So my second season was under Feld. Okay. But the first season, um, I kind of like specialized in the indoor shows, and we it was they're super fun, and because I was in school, I was flexible with my schedule and everything, and I won Rookie of the Year uh, my first year for Tech Official, and I was the first woman to do so that wasn't already involved with the organization, like uh, as a registrar or their husband worked there too or something like that. So, Well, congratulations that on cool. that. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So what, what did you like most about the monster truck shows? Um, actually, the safety inspections because I'm a dork, a safety <laughs> dork. But I got to crawl in all the trucks. And, you know, check them all out and look at their fire suppression systems and count how many nozzles. And that experience has actually transitioned this year after uh, an unfortunate rock bouncer accident, fire accident. I got back involved with SPA Technique, their fire suppression company, and was able to organize racer packages and with severe discounts so that we could just get as many systems into these cars as we could. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear, especially on the rock bouncers or racers. Mm -hmm. And that was Wes Keen's accident? Yeah. 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 And he, he ran our product. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah, previously in the in the UTV class. Okay. So that time it felled, was it just two seasons then? Yeah. It started getting in the way of school and and... I had to really focus. Um, architecture school is very demanding. So I wanted to put that first. Okay. And then you did graduate with the degree in architecture? Uh-huh. And went to work in the field of architecture for about five years. And during the summers, I would do internships. And as far as architecture, I wanted to be an architect since I was like eight years old and I saw falling water by Frank Lloyd Wright in person. And I was just like, this is insane. So it was actually a lot of people asked me when I was transitioning to another industry, like, am I going to regret it? And so far, absolutely. I haven't, but I don't think I would be where I am today without all of the schooling and project management and just professional work that I've done. Right. No, that's, that's a great background. I'm, it's like, I, I don't do, my degree was in commercial photography and product advertising. Went to a place called Brooks Institute mm-hmm. of Photography in Santa Barbara. And cool. I, I mean, with the magazine, I do some photography and, mm-hmm. you know, I use my, uh, <laughs> my iPhone primarily. I don't use my, my Sony very often, but it's uh, it's something I'd, I'd like to get back into, but it prepared me for everything else that I've done. You know, getting mm-hmm. up and and in crit, you know, in class, and then having to get your work critiqued, and everybody mm-hmm. everybody wanting a better grade, so they would really find <laughs> things to bag on your stuff about. You know, and and it was that way with everybody, so you know, it was it was fair, but it created like a thick skin in me, so I could. I didn't realize that it was going to be a great 
training exercise and being an event promoter, you know, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you do and how well you do somebody's it, gonna complain. somebody's going to complain and tell you that you're not doing it right or you need to do it some other way and you can't take that stuff personal. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I can understand. Yeah, architecture critiques, yeah. they're, they're intense. <laughs> yep. I can imagine. Cause I mean, you don't want something happening like, you know, bridge collapsing or, you know, apartment buildings, that kind of thing that, you know, we've seen mm-hmm. in the news. So, you know, with the architecture crits and the, what you have to go through, same thing. I want to make sure you get it right. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, totally. So at that point, you were still in the four-wheel drive off-road club? Yeah, yeah. And um, my husband joined the club and we... You guys saw met the RC Rock series. Did you did you meet yeah. in the club? Yeah, we met in the club. Okay. And uh, I, I think it's funny. I was the president at the time, and my Jeep was bigger than his. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the RC Rocks amateur rock crawling competitions were just starting up at Roush Creek, and Roush Creek is like our our backyard, but it's four hours away. Right. Um, and so Eric and I, I was like, I want to, I want to compete. I want to see what I can do. And I built a horrible exo cage on my CJ, uh, (laughs) with the help of a dirt car mechanic and team owner. And then I was like, let's, let's do it. (laughs) So it's great relationship building, you know, hanging off the side of a, a big mound of rocks with a water ski rope and Eric yelling at me, like steer into it. (laughs) And you guys are still together after that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we can even back up a trailer without like (laughs) yelling at each other. That's awesome. Eric's a good guy. That's for sure. Yeah. He is. So the competitions, how many, how many competitions did you, did you get into? there at Roush Creek or in the surrounding area? Um, so we did, I did like a, a preview the year before Eric and I did a season and we, I think we just did one season, one or two. We, we never won, but we never lost. Okay. But being a, a CJ on revolvers and, and comparing that to, you know, TJ's long arm Clayton kits and cutting breaks, like we we weren't going to be able to reach that level, but at, with our current vehicle setup, but it was it was a lot of fun. I had a few rollovers, you know, breakdown time. I had to change a shaft once and hustle back to the pits, and we're you know team teamwork, throwing it all together. And then then we just basically after doing competitions, we we would go wheeling almost once a month with the club just recreationally. We go down to Big Dogs, and we got really involved in the opening of the AOAA park and the public meetings. We would rent a minivan and shuttle us all down there so we could go to the public comments and and say, you know, this this really, if you build it, we will come <laughs> type deal. Right. Yeah, and then uh, kind of segue into uh, 2013, there is the Vermont Jeep Girl Challenge. And I was invited to that and Eric and I showed up in our matching Aussie locker 
outfits and everybody thought we were off the locker when we went there. But yeah, I guess I got to back up for our connection with Aussie Locker. It started basically when I joined the club. The owner of Torque Masters, who manufactured Aussie Locker, was in our club and still is. Okay. And when I was getting my CJ ready for competition, I asked him if he would sponsor me. And he said yes. And I thought this was like the biggest day of my life. I have a sponsor. <laughs> it was so cool. And uh, so we took out the lock rights that were in the Jeep and put in Aussies and I had matching shirts made for Eric and I, and uh, we wanted to represent the team well. And so that was our first sponsorship and first like relationship building with Bill Cole, the founder of Torque Masters. And so fast forward to 2013, Eric and I had bought a motorhome, so we could only tow one Jeep now. So we had to decide whose Jeep was going to be sacrificed. <laughs> and uh, that was my, that was my CJ that was going to be sacrificed and parted out. But before we parted out one last hurrah and it's this Jeep girl challenge. So uh, there was like an obstacle course, mud drags, rocks, whatever, multiple challenges. We had like a tire change challenge and, and uh, it was fun. Like I, I sent it. <laughs> At that event, Bill had mentioned to Eric that, you know, he's turning 70 and he's uh, kind of looking for somebody to handle the day to day. And so the whole ride home, Eric and I are like, what about this? What about that? What about this? And I was at the point in my architecture career, like you have to work for like almost five years worth of hours under a licensed architect before you can get your license. So I had already reached that point. So I called Bill on Monday morning and I said, hey, Bill, what if uh, you wanted to sell the company? He said, I, I have X amount to work with and uh, I'd, I'd really be honored if I could buy your company. And he said, OK, let's talk. And in my head, I go, oh, shit, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> we have those moments a lot. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I was like, well, I got, I got my foot in the door. I'm going to figure out how this works. And it seems like you've done a really good job at that. So let's talk about, let's talk about the transition from architect to off-road business owner and designing, I would imagine buildings and now designing lockers yeah so the the overall concept is pretty similar you're designing a product or something and then uh you go from the sketch stages to the construction to the the sales um so on that level it's pretty similar um it took about a year of negotiations to acquire the company during that year i, I met a lot of people um and was connected with other people and uh, advisors. And um, so I learned a lot that year. I have to give a ton of credit to Eric because he was a business owner for 20 years. So he knew how to run a business. And so he was coaching me along the way as well. So I ended up buying the company and there was already another interested party 
when I came onto the scene. Oh. And that was just a machine shop looking for a product to fill their machines. But they had no passion and they had no interest and they, they had no experience. And I had years of experience with my CJ. Eric ran Aussies and his CJ. They're still in there. <laughs> and um, so Bill, Bill wanted me to win. Um, and I just had to outbid the other guy a little bit. <laughs> So, <laughs> I hate so, when there's uh, bidding yes. wars. <laughs> I know. So I'm, I'm Bill stayed on for two months and kind of taught me the ropes. And I think the incubator at the University of Rochester invited me to a mini MBA class. And um, it's for startups. And the way I approached it was the company is not a startup, but I am. And so we learned basic. Well, like actually kind of kind of upper level business skills to round out my skill set. And at the end, we had to come up with a product and a proposal and a plan to launch it and, and stuff like that. So that was really cool. And um, I, I from architecture, we do a lot of continuing education. And right. so with the business now, I'm going to all types of lectures and seminars and and getting involved with these incubators like if you need a product 3d prototyped you can talk to your local incubator which probably has a 3d prototyper and they'd be happy to help you usually for free so there's a lot of a lot of cool stuff out there of people that just want to help and give back and um just be mentors and the, the Rochester Angel Investors Network was involved with the uh, mini MBA, which is smart, you know, take them out early. Absolutely. And, uh, and so I, I gained a couple really awesome mentors just from that experience in law. So the, the transition then, how, I know when, when Shelly retired and mm-hmm. we started doing this, she came on board with, with We Rock. She was really worried about her identity because she had always been Shelly at first American. And now she was going to be, you know, doing the books at We Rock and not, you know, really being, you know, she's moved into that Shelly at We Rock very well, but she was, she was, she'd lost her identity there for a while. And, did you go through some of that yourself or was it just busy enough? You just jumped right in and, and swam fast. Well, I always had two identities. I had the architect and I had been off-roading and fabricating in my garage. So to me, it was just like flipping a light switch, but I did, we did take uh, 2015 to learn the shows and the races because we didn't want to commit to doing vendor shows if it wasn't our craft. So that was, that was something we, we uh, planned to do. And so we went to a bunch of different shows and events and we went out to King of the Hammers for the first time to help pitch support for two of our friends and got the lay of the land. And after going there in 15, I'm like, okay, we're going to race stock class <laughs> and we're going to release our new Dana 60. <laughs> and uh, so we did. 
it wasn't easy. Uh, we bought a salvaged LJ. Took a while to get the title cleared up. And then we basically we built a stock class Jeep in 60 days. And rolled it out, drove to California four days, and then we were still doing some wiring in the pit. But it was uh, quite the experience. And were you able to complete the race? Nope. No. Okay, that's okay, because <laughs> a lot of people don't. A lot of people nope. have tried for and years and years and years and have never finished. It's so frustrating. We're stock class, and back in 2016 when we first raced it, it was not on adjusted time. So we left the line an hour and a half before everybody else, and we're the slowest ones out there. And we got to the top of Aftershock, and they're like, nope, it's closed down. I'm like, we have a lighting sponsor. We can make daylight. Like, let us on the rocks. And they're like, nope. They wouldn't even let us compete on our own, you know, insurance, basically. Right. So that, that was a bummer. But it was a clean race. We had no issues at all with the vehicle. And then we turned around and went to Easter Jeep Safari, like, three, four weeks later. All we did was change the windshield. Change so, the windshield. I mean. You put it back yeah. in? Yeah, yeah. We had two okay. windshield frames. One okay. for racing with no glass and one with glass. So All right. Yeah. And then it became a streetable Jeep. And it's still one of our best builds. Uh, we raced KOH again and also didn't finish. And then um, I competed in the first for Bell Rally and the second one in the same Jeep. So it became like Overlander Rally. It was KOH stock class and trail ride and it's a Swiss Army knife. That's awesome that that you have a vehicle that is capable of all those things. So let's talk about Torque Masters and where you know your uh, kind of your product line and what you have developed since you've taken it over. Well, sure. before we so- before we get into that, you had mentioned Eric was a business owner prior to. You guys getting Torque Masters? What was he yeah. doing? What was he doing? Uh, he was. Um, he came to work for me in 2017, but previous to that, he had he he started out really abruptly as well. But he he has construction and carpentry schooling, and then he basically went out on his own and started his own company and he when i met him he was doing really high-end uh trim work and stairs and some outdoor kitchens and stuff like that but in rochester he was the best guy i mean he some of these rooms were like a hundred grand just in uh cherry paneling and wow coffered ceilings and all sorts of stuff like he he has a real attention to detail. He's very skilled. And so uh, he was doing more of the craftsman work, not, not general mm-hmm. building. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. All right. So then let's get back into Torque Masters then. You're you've you've taken the company over. What mm-hmm. was their original product line and where have you taken it since? So the original product line was Aussie Locker. I think there's about 10 or 12 SKUs. And when I purchased the company, we had the a new locker 
in development trying to get a patent. And they had named it Raptor Walker. And I didn't think that was a good name. So I rebranded it Torque Locker because our style of locking differential is actuated and engaged by torque. So went with that. And it's also the same spelling as Torque Masters, T-O-R-Q. So I released that. Our first one was the Dana 60. And then we came out with a 14 volt. And then going to these shows and everything allows us to hear people and their needs. And in 2016, we were at um, a, a big vendor show in Louisville, and it was power sports and four by fours. And so we had a bunch of power sports people coming up to us. Hey, we need this for our Can-Am. Hey, we need this for our Polaris. And we're like, oh, OK, I'll, I'll look into it. So I start going through parts diagrams and everything. And that's how I do my research. I'm like, oh, it's an open diff. Like, we can make a locker for that. We'll just scale it down a little bit. And uh, then I'm doing my research and I'm like, wow, this one little Can-Am locker is going to fit every Can-Am UTV and ATV from 2007 to today. And I'm like, that's like millions of vehicles. And um, so I developed that locker. And it's the first company, like, that's transitioning drivetrain parts from full-size four by fours to power sports. And I grew the company 34% in one year wow. by getting into power sports. That's and amazing. So it's, yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of companies that can get into niche markets, I would say, because they're, they're big powerhouse and there's bureaucracy and levels. Whereas I'm the owner, you tell me you need something like Dave Cole called me up and said, Hey, Cora, my son's racing for Honda and we want a locker for the Honda talent. I was like, okay. And from start to finish, we developed, made three prototypes and I actually had to hand deliver it at KOH this year, we did it in 10 days. <laughs> 10 days from the phone call to the finished product? Wow. Yes. So that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we can do that stuff. But if you're building your parts in China, you got to wait six months for a production run and a boat to come over. Like that's. that's yeah, and then you have slow. to have the and quantities as, we, as well. Right. And so making parts here in the U.S., we can be faster and flexible. How is, I know this is kind of a little off topic, but how are the, the steel prices affecting you guys? We use a, an alloy that's not in everything, let's say. Okay. So the demand hasn't been as high and the pricing has stayed moderately the same. Oh, good. Glad to hear that. Yeah. So I see you guys do axles as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we released those a couple of years ago. And our our spin on it was we're shipping them fully assembled. So our experts are installing the U-joint, which is 
insurance for us because we know it's done right. And it's good for the customer because they don't have to put the U-joint in themselves. And so it's a win-win. Other parts we've developed that are unique, and my name's on the patent, um, is a Polaris full spool. And that's that's gotten us into the rock bouncer class. It's very popular. The the winningest guys are running all our our full spools in the Polaris RS1 and the turbo diffs. And that was just getting a Polaris diff in front of us, taking it apart and saying, ooh, I, oh, we could do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'd open up one of those diffs and go, okay, what the hell is all this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the same with uh, the Honda Talon diff. is very unique as well. has these uh, diamond-shaped, they call them chiclets in there, and you open it up and it just like dumps out all these chiclets and you're like, how does this work? So our theory is take out all that stuff and put our stuff in it. That's, that's interesting in how you would, I would think, being that I'm not, I was a, a mechanic for a while, worked in large automotive repair facilities and then became manager of them at first sales and then manager. But I was not, it, that wasn't my kind of, of work getting opening up a diff or anything. What amazes me is that how the variety of manufacturers has created something that does the same as somebody else's, but in such a different design. So being, mm-hmm. so, so then going into the aftermarket and then trying to design products for a wide variety of vehicle types is crazy because the Dana axles are not going to be the same as, as a Sterling or, you know, like, like you said, the UTVs, you got different things in the Hondas and the Polaris and the Can-Ams and it, it gives you a lot of the opportunity for a lot of skews, different parts numbers, but it's got to be, mm-hmm. it's got to be a nightmare to be able to take the time to design all that stuff and then get the product to market for each one of those manufacturers. Am I, am I guessing wrong on that? It's really not that hard. And we, we have the formula and we scale it to the different differentials. So, like, we were the first and only to market with a locker for Subarus. And we had Subaru guys banging on our door. And basically, if you build it, they will come type deal. And we we got, like, four different Subaru discs and took them apart. And half of them have this VLSD that's what we determined not suitable for a locker and the locker thrust. And, um it just takes getting your hands dirty. I mean, I could look at it as many parts diagrams as I want, but once we have a, a diff in front of us, we measure it up and and draw up the parts that'll fit inside it. So uh, we have like totes and totes and totes of different differentials and an axle shaft and and uh, the spider gears in there, and that's that's how we we build one. Okay, and how many SKUs approximately do you guys have now? I would have to 
double check because we're we're on a schedule. We're trying to release a new product every two months. And also some of our torque locker versions, we also have an Aussie locker version. So like the Dana 30 and the JK Dana 30 and the, the JL, uh, we only have torque, but Dana 44s. So there is some overlap there, but like torque is the big brother to Aussie and torque has a four year warranty. Aussie has a two Aussie and all the other ones previous, you know, lunchbox style lockers. They, they all have pins and springs and those pins can shear in a severe shock load situation, like breaking an axle shaft or jumping the vehicle. Um, the torque has machined in keyways or bosses and pockets and takes more material and time on the machines to make it, but it's stronger and those keyways can never shear. And so we've taken out the weak link and now you're going to break something else before you, you ever hurt the locker. Well, that's one of the things I've, I've found in, in off-road is that eventually, you know, there's going to be a fuse somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be where that, where that fuse ends up being, you know, there's the, uh, the technology over the years, you know, it, it's, um, I remember Warren had hub fuses. So, you mm-hmm. know, you would, you could blow those, but you could change them really quick, you know, six screws mm-hmm. and just pop it in. And, uh, I can remember having pockets of those things while mm-hmm. my friends were on course because after each course we'd have to change out hub fuses and, uh, just to go on to the next rock crawling course. That's way, you know, that's back in the nineties, but it was, uh, mm-hmm. it was kind of crazy. So, yeah, I mean, I'd rather break a shaft and, you know, if I don't have a spare, there's plenty of other Jeeps out there that probably has a spare, um, than taking apart a differential, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So trying to design, have a new product out every two months seems to me a pretty aggressive business plan. Do you have other designers or are you doing all the design work? Um, I have a lead engineer Okay. and we have a bunch of designs that are already ready to go. We just don't have the machine time. And right now we have a lot of parts that are out of stock as is a lot of people right now. And so we're trying to balance keeping up with stock, but also coming out with the new products that we already have, because if we keep pushing it back, pushing it back, pushing it back we're never going to release them. True. And so right now, next week we did a big pre-order and parts, the Honda Town parts are currently at Heat Treat. They should be coming back tomorrow. We'll blast them all weekend, get them up, and then Monday we should be shipping pre-orders. So really excited about that, and we want to keep riding that that wave of of innovation. So, are all of your lockers um, a lunchbox style? Yes. Okay, so you don't have yeah. any electric or or switchable. No, we don't have any selectable lockers, and that's because we believe there's already a, a great design on the market, and that's Ox Locker. Okay. So uh, that's the only other locker that's made in the U.S., and it's basically a mechanical selectable locker. And it's got a fail-safe, 
you can unplug the cable and plug in a bolt. They call it a drive away bolt to manually lock it or unlock it. And so to us, it's, it's in the keep it simple mentality, which we're really strong believers of. Um, but it does give you the option for an open diff for riding on the road. Okay. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I knew that, uh, Ox was here in the United States. Um, but mm-hmm. is a, I didn't know they had the bolt. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I'll have yeah, to look into that. It's totally cool. Yeah, and we didn't, we didn't want to develop a selectable and compete with another American made company when there's already what such a good design out there. Right. And so we actually, we have a great friendly relationship with Oxlocker. Um, and we recommend each other's products to each other's customers. Okay. So that's whatever a, that's is the right great. fit for the person. Right. So let's talk now about your being involved with SEMA. When did that, oh, sure. when did that get started or was, um, or was the company involved with SEMA before you took over? It was not involved okay. in SEMA. Um, we have been a SEMA member on and off and I started going to the show actually back in 2014 when I just bought the company and um, I just wanted to see what was out there. And I mean, in the architecture world, you network and you want to learn about new products, and new innovations. So same here. So went to SEMA and I was looking through all the different events and I was like, Oh, there's, there's some women specific events. And that was, those were hosted by the SEMA business women's network. And so one of them is gear up girl. And that's when um, students and young aspiring racers become a network with women in the industry. And I went to that and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then I'm like, oh, Jesse Combs is here. I was like, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so there was probably like a 10 year gap from when I was watching her on TV to when I met her in person. And I was just like, wow, this is like inspiring. Um, and so over the years and over SEMAs, I've been going to the SEMA Business Women Network events. And then um, last year, early last year, um, Charlene Bauer, who's on the select committee, asked me if I would like to volunteer. And they voted me in to the SEMA Business Women's Network select committee. And I'm on two of their subcommittees. One is event planning and the other is communications. And so we actually just had our SEMA summit for the select committees and the board. And it was two and a half days of uh, intense, you know, PowerPoints and updates and uh, priorities and strategic goals. And uh, it really brought everybody together and got us all on the same page because SEMA is not just a show. Like they're advocating, they have lobbyists um, in DC. Uh, they're, they're working with, um, trying to protect our, our lands for, and preserve them for vehicle use as well, land management. And, um, there's, there's always some sort of legislature or something that, (laughs) uh, can affect aftermarket automotive, uh, manufacturers. So if somebody's trying to outlaw lift kits or you need mud flaps and stuff like that. So there's always a need 
uh, for people to keep an eye on that and, and volunteer and, and see what they can do to preserve the industry. Yeah, there people are attacking our industry on two fronts. One through vehicle re, um, restrictions, mm-hmm. like all the CARB rules, the California Air Resources Board, and then, like you said, uh, individual states that are, you know, mud flap and lift laws and all that. And then, of course, also in land use, where they're mm-hmm. trying to limit where we can, where we can recreate. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. there's a, I mean, if you, if you ended up wanting to be involved in, in saving our industry, there, there really is at least two fronts that you can get involved with the fight. And uh, it's nice to have an organization like SEMA that's so large and powerful that they can uh, they can pull in all those great resources to uh, to work against, not work against, but maybe work with and get mm-hmm. good information out to the government and these people that are trying to uh, to shut things down one way or another. Because they're they're typically just hearing one side of something, they're not hearing mm-hmm. what the the real grand effect is. Yeah, and through SEMA, we just had our Washington rally, which usually is in person, um, but this year it wasn't. And they do it every two years, and so I volunteered to do it. And then they set up three meetings with three senators or House representatives, and they set me up with three people in our district. And so I could say, Hey, I'm a manufacturer here making parts and your, this RPM act could affect, could affect our manufacturing and essentially shut us down, even though we have nothing to do with clean air and explaining to them that emissions and and clean air and concerns in that realm has nothing to do with uh, a locking differential. And I compared it to a house. It's like, okay, so you build a house and you got plumbing, electrical, HVAC, roofing, you know, all these different systems go into building a house, but the plumbing has nothing to do with the electrical. And they're like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's, um, unrelated, but... The, the EPA right now is trying to reinterpret the Clean Air Act. And what it's trying to say is that any OEM vehicle cannot be modified into a race car. So, like, you know, you drive your Porsche to work, but you go to track days and you want to put a cage in it and an exhaust and, and different wheels and tires. Like, they're, they're trying to say that that is illegal. When it has so nothing our, yeah. to do with the clean with clean air, right, right. Like what tires and wheels you put on your porch? Like does that affect your emissions? No. And the same goes for off road too. It's like my LJ. It's street legal, but it's also a race car. So is the entire LJ like illegal because I raced it? So anyway, uh, the RPM Act is uh, a bipartisan act that. SEMA is pushing very hard to say, hey, if you want to deal with emissions, deal with emissions, but leave the rest of the aftermarket automotive industry out of it. Good. 
Good. I'm glad. And so I, I didn't know anything about that until the Washington rally and getting prepped for that before I talked to my senator. I was like, oh, I didn't know anything about this. And um, it's it's something that's going to affect all of us. Right. Yeah, that I it's another soapbox I don't need to get on right now. But <laughs> OK, <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, you know, you could go you can go on and on and on and on for hours about, you know, what the government, you know, they may have in the long run, there may be part of all this that makes sense. But when they make a change with one thing, they don't realize that they're they're doing sweeping reform across other platforms then that mm-hmm. that don't necessarily need to be affected or impacted. And they don't, right. they're not. They're they're they may be lawmakers, but they have no idea of what they have no idea what they're doing and why well, they're doing it. It's hard to read like a twenty thousand page thing, you know, and know the ins and outs of all of it. And they're like, so anyway, right. I don't want to get into politics yeah. either. But yeah, we we're but both yeah, on the I same mean, page with that, right? Anything I can do to help to protect our industry, like it has your future and my future interest involved, you know? Right. Yep. So let's, let's transition over to something that you mentioned about, and that was being a rebel. Um, yes. We have actually, I have actually quite a few female listeners to the podcast. So I would like you to, just touch on the rebel a little bit and what your experience was and what you thought of it. So I actually have some exciting news about the rebel, but I can't say what it is until the 18th of August. When is (laughs) this going to be released? Um, I can, uh, I can make sure it's after the 18th. Okay. So Ford asked Melissa Fisher, my my first navigator and co-driver, uh, and I to drive for them for the Rebel this year. Nice. Yeah, so we're super psyched. The the Rebel getting back to the event. Melissa and I are good friends. Melissa's from Moab, and she's a hardcore rock crawler, and she's super awesome. And uh, when her and I both heard about the event, we're like, oh, we should do this. We don't know what we're getting into, but let's do this. And it's not an inexpensive event to attend. So we, we had to do work on some sponsorships and stuff like that. And we did our training, pre-training that they offer. And it's a, a 2,000 kilometer woman only uh, navigation rally raid. And there's no GPS and no cell phones. And every morning at 4.30, you get your checkpoints for the day and you have to plot them out and then we leave in our two classes. There's the four by four class and the crossover class. And the first and second year of the rebel, Melissa and I competed in the four by four class in my uh, stock class Jeep. Did your Jeep have, did it have AC? The first year? No. (laughs) (laughs) And Melissa got heat stroke the first year and the last day in Glamis. Right. And then the second year I was like, Eric, we need to put some AC in here. (laughs) <laughs> and so it, it, 
the Jeep had pros and cons. It didn't have the room or the AC like the four doors do, but it did have good shocks and suspension seats. And that we didn't get beat up in the car. So we could be more mentally sharp. So especially after you got some AC. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Then we we were on a roll. We did so much better year two, like year one, the winner, Charlene, they had 86, I think percent of the total points. And in year two, the winner had 93%. And like, it was the top five were in like three or 4%. Of each other so the competition definitely went up and it from what i've heard it's it's just getting more and more competitive every year and emily comes up with more and more creative ways to trick us when we're out there on course absolutely it is one of shelly and i enjoy staffing that event more than we i almost hate to say this but more than we enjoy doing our own but there's always some satisfaction in when it's somebody else's event and you get to work it so you don't have all the uh you don't have all that background pressure pressure. right exactly but understand i understand the whole ac thing because our cherokee there is no ac Mm -hmm. and with the way the atlas was put in there and the way cherokees uh are are designed to where they they just kind of open up in places. Um, and that's all I can say about the unibody is that, you know, it's <laughs> like we call it the wood stove because it's like riding a wood stove in the middle of summer. So now oh we've been gosh. doing it the last couple of years in a Raptor pickup and, you nice. know, where the AC works, it's really comfortable, great suspension. It is so much nicer to be on those, <laughs> you know, on that route and uh, not have to worry about, you know, first of all, if I'm going to finish it, you know, I mean, I've had problems <laughs> in the past over the, you know, but without in the Jeep, all weird stuff. But, you know, now with the Raptor, it's so much more comfortable and easy and and carefree, you might say. So vehicle choice yeah. is big, whether you're staff or whether you're a competitor. I see a lot of... Mm-hmm. A lot of girls or women that that come out to do the event and they're or they're talking about it and like, well, you know, my car's not ready yet. I need to put sixties and I need to do this and I need to do that. And I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because you're not rock crawling. You're not doing the rock trails anywhere. You know, it's yeah, you may go right. through some washes and stuff like that, but it's they're designed where just about anything that is all wheel drive can drive through it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you may have to pick your way through it, but, you know, it's it's doable. So mm-hmm. any of the women out there that are thinking about doing it or guys, if your women have been talking about it, mm-hmm. get them involved with it. And yes, it is. It's not an in, inexpensive event, but I believe it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, I tell people it, it was a life event. Like in my life, if we're talking about the top five moments or top 10 moments, it's that event is on there. 
Like you will never forget it. You're going to wake up in the middle of the night looking for a blue checkpoint. Like it's, <laughs> it's that type of event. Um, and it's, it's really nice to be away from technology for 10 days. And the first year I was so worried about like all the stuff I had to catch up on and I wasn't going to have my cell phone and this and that. And by the last day, my husband's like, Oh, you want your phone back? I'm like, Nope, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Like, <laughs> let me enjoy the gala. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about your property and the new shop and what you guys have done since, uh, since buying the, the property that you're now residing on. And where is that? Yeah. So we're, we're located in Victor, New York. And, uh, I moved in with Eric, you know, a long time ago and started fixing up his house. And it was just, his old house was on a very small lot and we had a pretty small shop, a 30 by 36. And it was a busy road and you'd have to back down the driveway with a big trailer motorhome, And it was just not ideal. So we were, we were house hunting for years. We, we found this place and it was listed too high and we did kind of like a second look at it and it was only three miles from our house. We were looking at places like half an hour away and we bought the, the new property and it, it, it wasn't everything that we wanted, but we knew it was a good location and the property was incredible and it was on a quiet road three miles away and just you, you basically can't see the house from the road. It's an eighth mile long driveway. And we were just like, we're going to buy the land and the, the house is moving ready. And they, it had a shop, but the shop wasn't finished. Okay. And so we're like, okay, it's a good starting point. We can, we can fix everything else. Lots of potential. Make more land. Right. Yeah. And so we started phase one, building out the current shop, which is 36 by 40. And we had to pour a slab and insulate and put in a furnace and all that stuff. But it's the height's not big enough to put a lift in. And so we've been here now two years and it, it probably took us a year and a half to figure out what we wanted to do for an addition for the shop and how we wanted to lay everything out. And we're, you know, I'm taking drone shots and doing sketches and, we cut out like little shapes of the motorhome and show trailers and stuff <laughs> like that. We did a ton of site work and lots of gravel. So right now with the driveway improvements we did, we could fit seven tractor trailers. Wow. Front to back all the way around in our driveway and around the big loop. So it's like Eric's dream driveway. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> like, like it's my dream driveway. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're overcompensating from living on a little postage stamp. <laughs> now we probably have more twice as much gravel as we did property at our last house, which is just like a dream. That's... And so we're putting up a 56 by 72 foot shop with a 16 foot sidewall. And we'll have four 14 foot by 14 foot overhead doors. Uh, across the front of it and then one 14 foot door in the back so we can drive through. Nice. And, and how uh, many lifts will you have? Probably two lifts. Two lifts. Okay. A lot of it is going to be motorhome storage and like 
show display storage. And then the first shop is going to be all fab because that's, that'll be the dirty side. We'll say. Okay. Yeah. I saw some videos that, that were put up drone, drone stuff that you guys with, uh, doing the, the earthwork and moving the, the dirt and everything. And, uh, it's very intriguing to watch, watch you go through that process. Yeah. We, we don't have cables, so we watch YouTube and stuff and we got hooked on the, the red poppy ranch guy and he does these long time lapses of, of working and building. And it's just captivating to watch at the end, you feel so accomplished. Like, it's like, oh, just built a house. And <laughs> even though it's not your house, it, it just feels good. I don't know. It's funny. So that's what we wanted to do, like, just document it. And even if it's just us that watches it, like, it's still cool for us. It's fun to, to go back and watch. Oh, man, it looks so different back then. And I feel like, I don't know if it's just me or other people that are 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 go, go, go all the time. You don't really sit back and like reward yourself for the accomplishments like you, you did. Cause it's always on to the next goal, on to the next goal. And by documenting this, it's like, Oh, I remember that. Oh, wow. Like it's come so far and it, it helps you appreciate where you are. Right. And I mean, cause in all honesty, until, video became so easy with our smartphones recording yeah. one's life was was very difficult it was time consuming and then you know i mean i remember before handy cams you know doing everything on super 8 and and stuff like that mm -hmm. and it's just gotten to the point where now where it's so much easier because before the only thing you ever really recorded was maybe still photos of you know having kids and they're as they grew up and even that like from my generation my parents didn't take very many pictures of when we were kids and when i was a kid and out you know water skiing or snow skiing or anything like that it just there's just not that history recorded and nowadays you know everything is recorded but mm -hmm. it gives everybody a chance to go back and look at it and and reminisce i mean before it was like if you had and the only thing you had recorded was maybe your wedding. Yeah. <laughs> and and now that's completely changed. So that's that is one great thing about technology. Right. There's pros and cons to everything, but it's it is something I appreciate. And we did a, a vlog going to Easter Jeep Safari I, I don't know, like four years ago. And this year we didn't go out or last year we didn't go out. And so we rewatched the vlog every day and it, it's funny. Like, I don't, I think it has like a hundred views on YouTube and Eric and I have like quotes from the vlog <laughs> where, where in one of them, he's like, Ooh, hot tub for later. <laughs> like, <laughs> We never would have remembered that moment or that quote if we hadn't like, shot a casual fun vlog right but we, it was very time consuming yeah because i mean you weren't just using point of view cameras were you that were just stationary and had them running the whole time 
you guys actually would say, okay, now is the time to, we're going to do this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like we were doing an intro every day where he would like on a whiteboard, he'd say like day three, 3000 miles or no, we can't do 3000 miles in a day, 900 miles from here to there and draw like mountains. And so we, some of it was like planned and the rest just uh, off the cuff. Right. So what else do you have in the, in the works? I know that we, uh, we talked about Ford and you and Melissa again, teaming up and doing, um, the rebel this year. Are you guys going to be in an, in one of the full size new Broncos? Or are you doing a sport? We are going to be competing in the sport. Okay. Which is going to be very different than a ultra force stock class Jeep. Yes. So I have to keep that in mind, but I used to have a daily driver, a Jeep renegade. And so like weight and size wise, they're, they're kind of similar. So I'm comfortable in a smaller vehicle and we're just going to, we're going to absolutely do the best job we can. And to do that, we're going out early in September to do some training in the sand. We're going to fly into LA and drive the, the team of us out to Glamis and, and just really get a feel for it. The other drivers are Shelby Hall. She's in a full size and um, Catherine Reinhardt from four wheel parts. She's going to be in a full size as well. And okay. so the, the, the three of three teams are getting together and we're really, you know, working together on planning and what to pack and tools we need and tools they have that they're going to be equipping the vehicle with. And when it comes down to terror trips and, spares and stuff like that yeah so i'm i'm really interested i want to go to glamis and see how low i can air down before i lose a bead and i'm going to reset the bead and make sure we have an air compressor and some sort and i just want to do like pretty analytical testing of this vehicle so that i i have that benchmark there's there's one thing i'm going to suggest and that's to talk to Shelby about what you need to have when you refuel if you have to get if somebody has you know some right. one of the staff has to come along with a gas can because we right. had a hard time trying to fuel her after a a sand area and luckily we got her to a gas station because the nozzle that I had on the gas can wouldn't work in that Bronco sport and there were the mm -hmm. funnel that they're supposed to have the adapter type funnel wasn't in the vehicle. So yeah, that's uh that's one of the things you need to make sure you have <laughs> that or yes. I'm going to go buy one <laughs> and carry it along <laughs> in my toolbox. <laughs> well, I wonder how many other vehicles are using that now. So exactly. It's probably not a bad thing. Right. And that's something we talked about at SEMA at the SEMA summit is we need to look long, long-term and SEMA actually bought a garage facility in Detroit where we can go and rent it and team up with Ford and say, Hey, we want to check out this new vehicle you have and all the autonomous 
things, like if I want to take the bumper off a Ford Raptor, can I do that with adaptive cruise control? Oh, and yeah. vehicles, vehicles are just getting smarter and smarter. And if, if you mess with the system, maybe the car won't run. So that's, those are questions that we have for the future and electric vehicles. And if I change the wheel and tire size, is that going to throw off cruise control or battery management, you know, things like that. Yeah. And is it even adaptable? I know that like on my Raptor, I can go in and change the tire size in the computer with using a tuner, but you know, I've got a, a 2012, you know, what, what's coming out technology now, are they even allowed, you know, is there any way to even, you know, break into that? Bypass it. Yeah, exactly. So that's long, long long-term planning. We got to, and we got to have a conversation with the OEMs to say, Hey, we want to be able to modify these vehicles. Don't make it so it shuts down, please. (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, there's some systems that they should probably, I don't even want to say that because every vehicle out there that is produced should be able to to do some kind of performance upgrades that, but for racing applications without mm-hmm. having to just gut everything and start over and just using the mm-hmm. shell. So I, I don't know if that is ever going to, if the government's ever going to allow that or the manufacturers as well, because I know that they're trying to get rid of the street racers and all the other things that, that people are doing, um, with these vehicles. So who knows? Yep. Just got to keep an eye on it. Exactly. So what is up with, uh, in the future for Cora and Eric? Uh, we are hustling. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're so focused on what we're doing now. There's no kind of like exit strategy or anything right now. Okay. Um, we, we love what we do. Um, I'm not even 40 yet. I know there's, there's a lot more things that we can do. You guys um, are still kids. <laughs> yeah. So we want to keep innovating and I don't know how much more racing we're going to be doing. Right. Um, I'd love to see my husband in a 4,400 car. Uh, he wants to build a moon buggy. There you go. And cause he, he really, really loves rock crawling. And it, give him a concourse and he'll be out there testing the limits and just all day. I could see like when he gets a, when he gets that look in his eye, I'm like watching the watch. I'm like, eh, maybe 30 <laughs> minutes. He'll be on his leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, I, I you're always not gonna learn the limits. No, you're unless not. Unless you push them. Yeah. And like I always, like I always say, and I'll probably make some people mad. Anybody can go fast, <laughs> but it takes talent to go slow. I I agree. I definitely agree. And I I know why racing is so popular, racing speed-wise, is because even if you're in last place, but you're driving as fast as you physically or mentally can, you're still Uh having fun. Yeah. 
If you're on a yeah. if you're on a rock crawling course and you're last, I can guarantee you you are not having fun. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you're 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 being challenged at every point that day, whether it's because of mm-hmm. breakage or you just can't hold the line that you want, whatever the poss- whatever it is, you can't figure out the strategy. There's so much strategy involved yeah. getting between game. the codes. Oh yeah, it's it is it's you're looking it's like a chess match where you have to, or checkers mm-hmm. or any of those board games where you have to look way in advance and plan what your attack is. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's what I know, but that's that's yeah. what makes rock crawling so appealing to me. Oh yeah, and us too. And now we're fortunate to have off roaded in many different areas of the country, and I'm still in love with rock gardens. Like Roush Creek has this amazing glacial river of boulders and you can just pick any line it's it's my piece in heaven right in there and we love like racing down it (laughs) or like nobody gets a backup and you know we have we have fun like that yeah when i when shelly and i are on a trail i i count backups and it was that way when we were setting up the race courses. You know, if I had mm-hmm. to get through an area and I had to take a backup, I was I was mad at myself. <laughs> and, yeah. And I was setting up a race course, not a rock crawling course. <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll still mess with each other and like sneak up behind somebody and go, Cone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. That I just uh I talked about that in the, the Jesse Haynes interview with uh, Shane Yost. Um, I related that, that scenario with him or with Jesse and, uh, that on the, the Rubicon following Shane and a couple of his buddies, I kept yelling cone cause he was rock crawling with us <laughs> and his friends were like, you yeah. know, who is that jackass <laughs> <laughs> back up <laughs> anyway? Yeah, that's funny. So things are, things are moving and grooving really well with, with Torque Masters and um, yeah, and everything going there, and you're you're deep into SEMA, going to do the Rebel again this year. I'm so happy to hear that, and I'm so excited. You're not even forty yet. God, you no. guys are kids. Wow, <laughs> he is. He's uh, <laughs> over forty-five. Oh, okay. I think he's forty-six. I don't even count anymore. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Age is subjective. No. Once you get above 58, 59 or 60, it it's more of a reality just because that to me is when I've I've noticed people talking about man, this is worn out. This is worn out, you know, and they're talking about body parts. You know, unfortunately our bodies are not like cars although they're getting more that way where you can go in and get things replaced, but you know, it's still, uh, it's, it's not quite as easy as replacing parts on a car, but it's, uh, you feel it. You really do. Mm -hmm. So stay young. Yeah. Well, we got some new models coming out that we're excited about. 
the Hot Italian, I, I mentioned, is releasing. And then after that, we're doing the Toyota front 8-inch clamshell, which is basically 05 plus Tacoma, Tundra, and 4Runner. And then my new daily driver is a four-door Tacoma that I'm going to build up a little bit and put a locker in, obviously. Obviously. So it's it's um, challenging for us in one way that we have so many different applications. We have so many different display vehicles. So, like, if we were just a Jeep company, you know, we'd have a JL and a Gladiator. But we, we have Subaru, we have a Tacoma, a Canium, a Jeep, a JL. We're doing Overlander stuff and rock crawling and side-by-sides and Subaru meets and Jeep Jamboree. So we have a lot of bases to cover. But after Tacoma, uh, we have the Sterling, which is really interesting. We're putting that in the LSD case, which is supremely stronger than any other like OEM case out there. It is, it is awesome. <laughs> nice. And we're reusing the two drive spiders. So that one, the Sterling is going to be like in the 310 or $20 range, which is super affordable. And it's, I think I'm pretty sure we're going to be the only one on that. And we're going to do a design patent on that one too. Cause there's nothing else out there like it. That's kind of, that, that's awesome. I understand the design patent process is, is, fairly long and tedious well the utility patent process is long and tedious okay and expensive and the design patent process is relatively inexpensive and it gets your shoe in the door and we we do i think i have five design patents in the u.s um and a few overseas too so design patents are in the Basic differences like a Coca-Cola bottle shape, you can get a design patent on because it's a unique shape. Right. The Coca-Cola recipe, which is secret and unique, that is a utility patent. Or okay. kind of like the, the functioning of it is the utility. The design and the profile is the design patent. Okay, that makes sense. Didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know the difference. The yeah, I have a great patent attorney. He um used to work for Xerox. So Rochester is a a company town. We had Bausch and Lomb, Xerox, and Kodak. Right. And at one point, like most of the population worked for one of those three companies. Now, as those companies have shrunk and disbanded, we still have all those engineers and and workers in the workforce here, but not the big companies. So a lot of people have gone out and started startups in a lot of different innovative areas. And so Rochester is really a hotspot for innovation and the cost of living up here is very inexpensive. So you can attract talent from other areas and, you know, say if you're from New York city, I mean, you could buy a mansion on the lake for the same price of like a studio in the dumps in New York city. So it's uh, a very appealing area. That's great for a lot of reasons for a company 
such as yourself, like you said, then you've got this, this great patent attorney. Um, you have people in that area that, uh, that those resources that otherwise you might have to go to the big city to get. Yeah. So my patent attorney is semi-retired and he's younger too. And at Xerox, they wouldn't just patent the copier. They would patent every single component that goes into it. Wow. And so that thought process is always going through my brain for what is unique and what is different. And if I have the choice of an open differential case Sterling or the LSD case Sterling and the case is like super bulletproof and this one's going to be unique and stronger, I'm going to go for that one. Right. Makes total sense. Yeah. So is there anything that we've uh that we've not touched base on that that you think listeners might be interested in hearing about your life? We have an awesome black lab her name's Petunia. She's the love of our life. <laughs> there you go. Petunia, huh? If you if you look at any of our social media, you're you're bound to get a a clip or a picture of her. She's adorable and super chill. Petunia. How did you come up with the name Petunia? Um, she's actually a breeder's dog. Okay. They named her and they were going to keep her to breed her. And at a year and a half, they go in for uh, x-rays and exams and stuff. And she did not pass her elbow exam. Okay. And so I had already met with the breeder and, um, formed a relationship with her. Like I started playing hockey with her two years ago. <laughs> she got me back on skates. And um, so we had developed a friendship and she called me right before Christmas and was like, Hey, uh, I have a year and a half old. We're, we're not going to breed. Would you like to buy her for what we have in for shops and exams? I was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's how she got and, the name. Uh, so she was. Yeah. Okay. That makes she, more sense. She then. was already a breeder's dog. Yep. And the story of her coming into our life is just, it, it, it's perfect. We weren't looking for a puppy because we travel so much and are, we're so busy. We couldn't, we couldn't have a puppy. So we're super thrilled and, to get her at that age. Yeah. I, I like, I love dogs. I love cats. I, I do not want to go through kitten or puppy stage ever again in my life. Yeah. So if we do, if we get another pet, we are going to do more than likely do a rescue or the same kind of situation where you're in that you're in with Petunia is to get something, mm-hmm. find a pet that is that is already gone through that training process so that they're not chewing and. You know, they've already been trained potty wise and, you know, hopefully yeah. a little bit of, a little bit of, uh, of training, social training there. So that's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally feel you. Well, Cora, I want to say thank you very much for spending time with us and uh, sharing your life and talking about everything that, that has gone on in it and how you got to where you're at and, I think uh, I've learned a lot about you, and uh, hopefully our listeners have done the same thing. 
Cool. Well, thank you so much for having me. As our, our friend Charlene likes to say, you know, we're all on our own journey. And um, this is where I'm at now. And and we're just hustling to, to keep moving and keep innovating and and rebelling and adventures. You know, that's that's what we're all about. Absolutely. And that's uh, that's the life of an off-road enthusiast and business owner. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, again, thank you. And we will see you, um, I guess, no later than... Uh, October. October, yeah. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll see you on the Rebel. I'm look, really looking forward to it. Seeing you two there, it, it gives us rock crawlers kind of like a, a home base, you know? <laughs> so... Well, we appreciate it. We we Thank really you. appreciate that that whole event and and the relationships that we've built with the teams from that event. It's just it really is a special part of our life, and uh, I'm so glad. I mean, that's that's really how we met. I knew of you before that, but it's really how we we met and got to know each other. So yeah, I'd like awesome. to spend some more time with Eric and get to know him better. But just haven't had yeah. that opportunity yet. But I have a feeling things will be we'll be able to do more of that here in a in a few years, and hopefully uh, we can come by and visit and maybe park in one of those spots where yep. we can get the big trucks <laughs> into. <laughs> Absolutely, we're we're pretty close to the the throughway I ninety, and we definitely welcome our friends. And, uh, I'd love to cook for you and. We could have a, a nice evening. That sounds great. All right. Say hello and uh, to Eric, and uh, good luck with all your endeavors that uh, you face between now and the Rebel and at the Rebel, and we'll see you there. Okay. See you later, Rich. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.